So at the time I was working in, in Rescue 2, one of the best firehouses in the New York City Fire Department, certainly the busiest and, and has been for several decades. And the ability to, to function in a chaotic, dynamic, un, uncertain, lethal environment is really the name of the game. And when I asked these guys what they valued most at fires, Across the board, everyone said somebody who was calm, composed, decisive, under pressure. Or something like that, you're putting your life on the line. You know, these guys are elite operators. And the stage of the game that they play at is way, way higher than anything in professional sports. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Steinfort, your host. And today is a, an extra special episode. I don't say that lightly. I've just had a little immersion event, which I'll play back to you in a second, into the type of world that uh, one of our guests faces every day. Right now. Perfect background for my 2 p.m. podcast. Um. Jason Bressler is a lieutenant with the fire department in New York and is also currently in the Marine Reserves, has been with the Marines for many years and has deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks Thank you, for being here. And it's an, uh, it's an honor to have you. Joining him is Jonathan Fader, who I am lucky to call a friend and a colleague for many years. We crossed paths initially when I was working with the Toronto Blue Jays and he was with the New York Mets in Major League Baseball. We've both moved on to, I would say, bigger and better things, so that's fantastic. Fader, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so great to be here. I appreciate both of you being here. We're going to talk a lot today about, obviously, a consistent topic through all of these shows is dealing with pressure, dealing with high-stakes environments, and how you can actually learn and grow and deal with that stuff better. And you two have worked in some areas that many of us are lucky if we get to experience one of them, let alone across multiple. Fader, you've worked in Major League Baseball, as we just spoke about. And you're currently involved and you, you've helped with Jason's initiative of setting up what, what's known as the, the MPI, right? That's the Mental Performance Initiative of the Fire Department in New York. Can you tell us, either of you can jump in here, how did that come about? Like what, it, it's a nice idea, but to turn it into an actual program that runs in an org the size of Fire Department in New York, like it's got to be an interesting journey. Sure. So... I kind of offer my my insight on it, and then uh, it'd be great to have first Fader share his, given his the prominent role that he's he's had in the the program, and particularly in shaping the program. But going about probably back a, a decade now in time, I had recently come back from Afghanistan, a pretty challenging tour there, on the heels of a pretty challenging tour with an infantry battalion in Fallujah, Iraq, at the height of the insurgency there. In both of those deployments really solidified for me the fact that the human factor undoubtedly is the single most important aspect as it relates to performance in a combat unit. You know, the, the military gives a lot of attention, makes a huge investment in the tactical aspect, technological equipment, you know, resources, et cetera. And for all good reasons, the ability to, to function in a chaotic, dynamic, un, uncertain, lethal environment is really the name of the game. 
in a cohesive fashion, right? With teammates and other members of your, of your unit. When I transitioned back from my tour in Afghanistan, I probably had five or six years on the fire department at the time. Enough, enough in the way of experience to kind of feel confident at fires and kind of understand how, what it took to be a good firefighter, but not nearly as much of the experience to the extent that I would have considered myself an expert in any way. And um, when I looked around the FDNY, when I looked at the guys that I held in the highest regard, they all had a tremendous amount of experience. They also displayed other you know, kind of traits and characteristics under pressure. But one of the things that they all had going for them was they had a tremendous amount of experience. And I, I recognize that, that my generation was probably less likely to gain the amount of experience or reps that they had, which is arguably a, a good thing for society. It's a good thing for New York City, but it's not necessarily good for the, the guy that wants to be the best version of himself self at fires and emergencies. And when I asked these guys what they valued most at, at fires, particularly in terms of a leader or an officer across the board, everyone said somebody who was calm, composed, decisive, under pressure, made exercise, good judgment, was able to maintain and foster a sense of calm. So I said, great. So I said, well, where, where does a guy with not nearly as much of experience go to learn about that? And they all kind of just shrugged and said it, it came with time and experience. And I understood their perspective and understood where they were coming from. I was just kind of dissatisfied with that answer because I, I didn't want to have to wait till I had 25 years on the job to own that aspect of performance. And I also recognized that I might not be able to gain the number of repetitions that they did over the course of their career. So having played baseball at a pretty high level in terms of, you know, college D division one, I was somewhat probably loosely familiar with the field of, sports psychology and the role of mental conditioning coaches. I was aware of the fact that there were pockets within the military that had begun to embrace this, more of them being in, in special operations than in the conventional units. And I just somewhat built up a network of folks who I thought might be able to help. At the same time, I had a couple opportunities to kind of present this deficiency to the senior leadership in the FDNY, not knowing really where it would land because oftentimes the case when you say mental and you, you know, performance, people immediately start thinking about the clinical aspect or behavioral. And when I just looked around, you know, arguably the world's, I'm of course biased, but the world's best fire department, certainly North America's biggest fire department, arguably it's, it's, it's busiest. We had a tremendous amount of, you know, similar military, great deal of attention devoted to the tactics technology, the equipment, and a really good understanding of kind of how our environment behaved, but a rather inadequate understanding of how we humans behaved at fires and emergencies. So I, I was just blessed that the, the senior leadership at the time, when I initially presented this deficiency to them, but then followed it up with the fact that I thought this was an opportunity to build a, a program that was comprehensive and holistic in nature, credit to them for listening and, and being willing, you know, their willingness to be challenged by somebody who was far less experienced and seasoned and, you know, subordinate to them several ranks over. So that was my, uh, I recognized when I, it was going to take a team of subject matter experts that had built human performance programs in similar, but different industries to kind of lend some insight and influence and credibility to what it was we were trying to do. 
And at the time, I recognized that Sandy Alderson, then general manager of the New York Mets, was, was probably one of the best figures that could help lend some insight and influence and credibility given his, the heavy lift that he did in baseball, you know, dating back to the 80s. And through my relationship with Sandy, who also happens to be a, a combat Marine, through my relationship with, with Sandy and his willingness to help, I then met Fader, which was absolutely huge. Well, tell us, because we both had experiences you know, in the recent past of meeting John Fader, and it's an interesting experience. For me, I remember vividly the first time I met you, Fader. I'm not sure if you do, but it's at a, a Major League Baseball function, I guess, run just for the psychologist, some performance, some clinical. And Fader was this cool mix of a guy who kind of bridged both worlds, had a foot in each camp, and has extreme knowledge and like could be nerdy and arrogant, but at the same time is one of the most down-to-earth and humble dudes and can just joke and, you know, made an inappropriate joke a second ago about taking his clothes off on the podcast because we're audio only, you know, that sort of down-to-earth guy. Everybody listening, I have my clothes on right now, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) For you guys to speak to the arrogance part, but nerdy for sure. I'm definitely, (laughs) I'm I'm Uh, not on that measurement. And so I'm curious, Jason, when you met him, particularly via Sandy, what, what was your impression of, given that you were looking for arguably someone who could bring the knowledge that Fader has and the experience sure. of working with Major League Baseball, but he's got to also be a little bit badass to be able to go in and like work with fire department or in your experience, you've been with like combat Marines. Like, was there something about Fader? You're like, hey, actually, this guy's going to do it. Yeah, I was definitely curious to see how it was all going to work. So I knew that he was going to be the first bona fide clinical psychologist, performance psychologist that we introduced to the FDNY. Um, I knew he would probably carry some street cred coming from professional sport. So, but I also knew that, you know, the bottom line is I knew that Sandy wasn't going to lead me astray, right? Like if Sandy's like, hey, this is my guy, he's solid. Like that's all I really needed to know. But yeah, absolutely. Certainly his personality was going to kind of influence the reception that he was going to receive. And, you know, I also kind of knew as it relates to this initiative, like sometimes you kind of get one chance to get it right. Mm-hmm. And if you get it wrong, that, that memory endures. And <laughs> not going to say you, you can't eventually get it right, but it's, it's, it's very difficult. So the first time I met Fader a few times in his, at his office in Soho at the time, or in Union, like in vicinity of Union Square. And, you know, he was, he's a hip dude, right? So... <laughs> But he's got the credibility in, in sport. He's kind of cerebral. He's very extroverted. You know, kind of guy I enjoyed hanging out with. And at the time, I was writing a point paper to help kind of shape the argument with the FDNY senior leadership. And he was super helpful in, in that role. But then I knew when the next order of business was going to, to bring him to the firehouse and see how he was received by, you know, the population at large, not just me. So at the time, I was working in, in Rescue 2. I'm, of course, biased because then I'm alum, but it's largely without dispute, like one of the best flyhouses in the New York City Fire Department, certainly the busiest and and has been for several decades. And, you know, it really is like an elite place. And I was honored to have worked there for a number of years. So I I bring Fader by one night and a lot of the guys that are working are, you know, avid sports fans, a couple are some pretty serious athletes. And most importantly, they're some of the best firefighters that I've, I've ever worked with. And uh, so we bring Fader comes by one evening. It's not too far from from his house, and it was uh, it was just interesting to see 
because I knew that the guys were going to kind of throw the screws to him. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, this guy's at least like can hold his own in a Mets clubhouse and, you know, in a professional sports team uh, clubhouse or locker room. The difference is like not taking away from that environment, but those guys are like kids. Like these guys are like men. They're like 52, <laughs> 53 year old men. And they're like, they're like rabid dogs, you know? And like actually one, one of the, one of the mantras of rescue too is because it's just such a competitive place in some instances, like is embrace the hate and the guys are just, they're tough on each other, right? It's, it's all about maintaining that sense of confidence, but knowing you're one flyer away from getting your ass kicked in such a way that's incredibly humbling. And I think part of the nature of the, the kitchen and the dynamic of the place, and it's similar in other flyouts, is just keeping everyone in check. Yeah. How much right? of that is a, is a cultural development of like, if, if we treat each other like this, we're going to be as prepared as possible for the shit that we have to face out there. Do you think that's like evolved over time or that's just the nature of the beast that comes into the room? Yeah, I, I think it's evolved over, over time. I don't know if the guys have, have been as thoughtful as in terms of like <laughs> in what goes into the culture to that extent. But I do think like it is a type of place where you just got to be consistently on your toes. So, okay. so Fader comes into this, in, this environment as an outsider. And typically most places like when an outsider come in, Folks are super hospitable, right? But Fader's not there as just some guy who wants to see the fire truck, right? Like Fader's there as some guy as part of this, this potential endeavor to make the FDNY better, right? And he's like starting in a firehouse where arguably some of the best guys work. And he comes in and they had a couple of questions for him, you know, like just to kind of pull him a little outside his comfort zone or maybe throw him some curveballs. And he was great. Like he, he just kind of, it was like they throw him a curveball and he knew just to kind of sit back and hit it the other way. And he played <laughs> to his strengths, right? He kind of avoided his, his weaknesses and they, they threw him two, one or two like kind of high fastballs and he hung in and maintained a sense of composure. And probably very quickly, it's like two dogs sniffing each other. They're good with <laughs> him. He's good with them, but they, they threw him some high heat early. He handled it well. And I, I knew he was going to do just fine in terms of, holding his own in the FDNY. Awesome. I mean, it's a great example. You've got to practice what you preach, right? Fader, you've been working with these athletes. You work with the New York Giants as well, which I yeah. don't want to brush over. And we'll circle back to some comparisons across the groups. But what's your memory of that? Not necessarily meeting Jason the first time, but your first experience of going into that environment of, was it not dissimilar to going into a major league locker room or an NFL locker room in I terms of the, the testing what- ground? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the difference is when Jason got me, you know, he armed me up and stuff like that. You know, I start once he put on the bulletproof vest, I thought, <laughs> okay, this is going to be a little bit different. So, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, I think the thing that you know Jason's talking about about you know two dogs sniffing each other is is widespread, whether it's in sports or whether it's in firefighting or military settings. People are trying to get a sense: who is this person? Do they fit in? And you know, I think a lot of you know what makes the transition of a mental performance program work wherever you're doing it has to do with that, the way it's introduced. Um, and so I think Jason was super thoughtful about that with the mental performance initiative at the FDNY. Uh, a lot of this is, you know, is the messenger, you know, like if you go in with the wrong way of saying things or a certain amount of kind of know-it-allness or disrespect, you're going to get eaten. But at the same time, if you have no backbone to your principles and to what you think, you're going to be disrespected as well. And that's been my experience as well, uh, working in professional sports. I think there's tremendous overlap. But what Jason is saying is true. I mean, you know, these guys are 
elite operators. And the stage of the game that they play at is way, way higher than anything in professional sports. You know, that, you know, I guess you can make the argument that in MMA or something like that, you're putting your life on the line, but nothing, there's nothing in sports that compares to the scale at which people experience things like physiological arousal. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I have just tremendous respect. And so I think what has worked for me is to show that humility and that respect for the operators in which I'm, you know, working with, but also to, to say like, Hey, here's this tool that we have and, you know, totally up to you how much you want to try it out. I think, you know, as you pointed out, there's a tremendous misunderstanding about what mental conditioning is. And that occurs in sports. That's not just in firefighting. I and mean, that, that definitely occurs in sports. You know, people, human beings do not like uncertainty or what they can't understand. You know, if something's uncertain or they can't understand it, this is as deeply in us as humans. We're going to run for the hills. And so whether you're a baseball player or a firefighter, your first instinct when someone starts talking about something you don't understand is to get away from it, right? And so I think that that's true in sports, probably less so now because just there's been an evolution and in the military too. But in firefighting, Jason and the crew at FDNY are some of the first people to take a wide scale mental performance initiative or mental training to really an entire department. And that's been such an honor, a tremendous honor to be tapped to be involved in any way in that. Yeah, it's, it's a really unique program, as you mentioned, one of the first firehouses and the biggest to take on something like this and, and that it has been seeded and started to grow up in a couple of other high-performing industries. But you're, you're right, that, the, the concept of, you mentioned before, Jason, you know, it's unpredictable and it's all these things, but you tack the word lethal on the end of it. And that's something we don't deal with in pro sports, which makes a big difference. I'm curious for you, Fader, and then Jason, you might be able to weigh in afterwards, is comparing the groups you've worked with pro athletes. And, and I am often surprised and often get asked, like, don't they just eat your shit up because, like, it helps them make an extra $10 million and they get a better contract? And, like, doesn't it make sense that everyone would want to do that? And it's absolutely not the case. There's a lot of sensitivity to introduction. And also, there's a lot of, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like I got here, don't fuck me up. Don't get in my head, right? And so that exists to a degree in sport. Is there less of that or more of that in terms of either running away or pure resistance for people who are dealing with life and death? Because it would make sense that if you're going to give me something that helps me handle pressure better and it means I'm more likely to stay alive, then I'm all about it. But I'm assuming that's not always the case. Did you find a difference there between sport and fire operators? Yeah, I mean, that's a really insightful question, Patty. And I think there is, in my experience, there's a big difference. In my experience, working with firefighters, there's much less resistance, considerably less resistance. You know, and I think about, like, what's the dynamic by why, why that's the case? Um, and Jason, I'm sure, has some thoughts about this and maybe has a different experience. But I think there's two reasons, a number of things. One is that the way the program is designed, as Jason was saying, you know, he worked with me and other people to say, hey, let's look at what other people are doing in pro sports, right? So he's like building a case about why this works. And so when it was introduced, it's part of the way it was introduced. As I always say, sometimes you want to serve a chicken dinner, but people want chicken McNuggets. So you got to make a chicken McNuggets. And so Jason really and the crew and the MPI, pro, he, he led it in a way, and it still leads it in a way that it's really designed to say like, hey, look, this is what elite athletes programs are doing. And so I think in sports, there is a precedent for it. But, you know, there's not like, oh, let's look at what these guys are doing. 
and funny, funny enough, we've tried to do that. And, you know, I brought Jason to work with the Giants and I've brought, you know, elite operators like Navy SEALs to work with the Mets. But I think the other element of this, which is what you got at before, Patty, is, you know, I think there's this, this sense of like, look, I can't afford not to evaluate something that's going to be helpful. Like if my life's on the line, I, I don't have the luxury of saying, ah, that's a stigma. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I need to really evaluate anything. And by the way, I've noticed differences between baseball and football in this, right? I mean, baseball has a sense of like, okay, it's the 400th game of the year. Like I've got all the chances in the world. In football, you have the sense is like, we go 16 times. Like if someone's going to help me, I got to evaluate it. And so I think the continuum for me is that football, there's been more of a, an openness to it, but firefighting has been a lot. I just don't want to discount the fact that a lot of that has to be attributed to the design and to the way it's introduced as well. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. One of the ideas I have about what we would call mental toughness, but I think about agility, is being able to perform the same way that you perform without a stress when the stress is there. So damn proud. My experience in football, I've worked in baseball and football as well, and my time in football was with the Eagles, and it was the first time a program had been rolled out by that, thanks to Chip Kelly being a very progressive coach. But one of the things I noticed that was immediately different was in football, you do what you're told much more than most of the other sports. You know, baseball's in between and basketball's right at the other end. And so I assume as you get further into fire and probably even at the pointy end of the spear with Navy SEALs, like if you're told to do something by the bosses, you, you end up doing it. Is that true, Jason? Or is there, is there more pushback, particularly as you get to the elite operators who are like, yo, I'm the best of the best. Don't tell me what to do. So you both raised some really great points. And these are things that we had to navigate and, you know, contemplate, particularly in the early, early phases as we were designing this program and figuring out what language we were going to use, what message we were going to use, who we were going to partner with on the outside. And one of the things I never wanted this program to be reduced to was somebody doing something because their boss told them to do it. Like if that's, and oftentimes I think one of the biggest myths about that society borrows from the military is that young Lance corporals or corporals or sergeants in, in the Marine Corps and the army do exactly what they told to do on the battlefield, exactly what they're told to, when they're told to do it, right? Like this blind obedience to orders. And, and I know firsthand, like that approach doesn't work. It's absolutely dangerous. And I didn't want, sometimes we'll roll something out and we won't give folks a choice. It'll be a piece of equipment that, that is superior than the previous generations. And like, Hey, you have to wear this. doesn't matter. You have to do this training. It doesn't matter. But this program is, is, is so important both professionally and personally, I, I didn't want folks to kind of have to blindly commit to embracing mental performance or mental conditioning or mental skills or any, any of this because their bosses were told them they had to. Rather, I wanted them to, to do it because that they, they want to do it. And one of the things I know that's true about virtually every single New York City fireman I've ever worked with, they all want to be better, right? And as many reps as there are, there aren't enough. Right. But it's not like batting practice. Right. I can't just show up tomorrow and like have a pitcher throw me batting practice. I'm going to work tonight. I might go to two fires. I might not go to any fires. I don't have control over how many fires I go to, but I have control of, of the training evolutions I'm going to run. I have control of the conversations that we're going to have. I have control over the, t the type of reflection that we're going to do on recent fires. 
And I knew that every, every individual in the organization that I respect and admire, the types of individuals that make the New York City Fire Department what it is, they all, they all want to be better. I also know that in the military and fire service and law enforcement right now, and, and in recent years, there's a tremendous amount of attention being given to the mental health piece. And that's significant because the fact is that some people do, do struggle, maybe not to the extent that the, that the narrative su- suggests, but there, there is a need for legitimate bona fide mental health resources. And with the best of intentions, a lot of organizations, when they're looking to address the mental aspect of performance, they're leading with the behavioral health and the mental health piece. The bottom line is though, that's not really what excites most operators. So I'm like, you know, this, this is another opportunity for us to connect with guys and gals and help give them a better understanding of how they respond to stress, both in the moment, like in an acute sense, and on the back end of an event that was, that was catastrophic, the outcome was certainly catastrophic. And we can, this initiative is kind of like a, a way to, to build a backstop in. But if, we give, if we're giving our folks a better understanding how they function under stress, we're giving them skills to absorb that stress in a, in a meaningful way. We're helping them to create a, a language that's tactically acceptable, right? And they're able to, to kind of generate a better baseline right? And enhance their self-awareness. Now in instances where they do struggle, and at times we all do, they're further along in that process, right? So I wanted the initiative to be focused on making them better. And, you know, we just, in, in many instances, because our organization is so rich in history, we've all been blessed with a number of mentors that we, we look back in retrospect and like, if I could go to any fire, you know, you send me the worst fire ever and you, you allow me, give me the f- good fortune of picking who I want to come to that fire with me. It's this guy. In many instances, that guy's retired. And then you drill into that. Well, why? He's composed. He's decisive, right? He's confident, but he's, he's humble. And it's you a start great- to say, you know, all of these, all of these qualities are characteristics of the, of the mind. Yeah. And, and it's a great, like that, I use that mirror question almost either what's been the best version of you or who's the best player you've played with, right? Whatever. But particularly when I'm saying to someone, what does toughness look like? Or t- tell me, cause you say you want to be tough. What does that actually mean? And get them to actually draw that out. Like here's what we're really talking about when we say these mental elements that we think are pretty important. You know, you mentioned before, if you ask high level performers, what's the most important part of your performance? They're like, Oh, it's definitely a mental edge. Well, what do you do about that? And what do you mean when you say mental edge? So I'm going to ask both of you at some point what, what your definition of that question is, but Jason, you were kind of heading down that way anyway. What would you say is toughness in both your military and fire experience? And also, like, at what point in your career were you like, uh, this is a thing and it's a, such an important thing that I need to do something about that? Was there an incident that revealed it to you or a person or it just sort of grew? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's countless um, that I can think of both in combat and at fires. And in many instances, when I look back at my kind of suboptimal performance, it's because the, it's somewhat cliche, but because the, the pressure of the moment be almost instantaneously or spontaneously exceeded the, the privilege of the moment. And it went from like enjoyment mode, confident mode, like I got this to like, oh shit, I don't have this. And in many instances, left to my own devices, I responded both kind of mentally and physically with more aggression, right? In an instance where it was actually like, 
And now in retrospect, it's better for me to kind of dial it back, right? Like less energy, less, you know, scientific context, like less arousal. Mm-hmm. I mean, years ago, I really embraced this notion of mental, mental toughness. You know, I prided myself on being a combat Marine and having fought in places like Fallujah and Southern Afghanistan and you know, prided myself on being a New York City firefighter. But as my understanding of the science and human behavior has, has evolved, and as I've, I've, I've benefited greatly from expertise and insight from folks like Fader and so many other folks in, in sport and the military, it's rare that I even refer to it as toughness because I think really what it is, it's actually agility because what we're actually looking for in these moments is we're looking for finesse, right? So a guy forcing a door in New York City that's fortified and has several case-hardened locks and you know steel to, you know, basically so that someone can't force that door at, at will, right, and, and commit th- theft. Those are the same types of buildings now we, we find ourselves that fires at in, in, in urban environments. Like, you're not defeating those locks through force. In fact, that's why those, the locks are designed that way, right? You're defeating those locks because you understand how to use the tool, right, and apply physics. It's all about finesse. It's, you know, and I could say the same in combat. Like, employing your weapon system on the surface, it looks like a tough act. It is, you're arguably, you know, potentially taking somebody's life, right, or neutralizing an armed threat, right, to increase the likelihood that you you win. But it's on the surface, it looks like it's about toughness. It's really about finesse, the ability to pull a trigger, right, the ability to innovate a fallen comrade, right, the ability to apply a tourniquet to an injured civilian, like. All of these things that we do with flyers and emergencies and large, the ability to fly a helicopter, right? I mean, there are times where the toughness kicks in, right? You're several hours into this patrol. You're several hours into this, this demanding tour at the firehouse. You're several hours into your demanding patrol on law enforcement. But for the most part, what we're actually – these high-pressure situations, high stakes, what we actually need is actually less brute, yeah. right? Less force, and more precision or more agility or more, or more finesse. And it really was like through my relationship, particularly with Fader and seeing his work with athletes, that kind of helps really solidify that for me. Yeah. And, that, and that's a fascinating, like I've probably discovered that myself playing professional sport as a young man and then being just a, a normal coach before I became a mental coach or a performance coach that I always thought it was like be tougher, be stronger, hang in there longer. Like it was much more about force and endurance but the more I've learned, and particularly with high-level performers, it's, it, it does become a lot more about definitely agility, like there's not always one way to solve a problem, and also flexibility, that at times I will actually let go, and that's what needs to happen here for us to work this out. Fader, what's been your biggest aha in that area in terms uh, of coming uh, to that? My, my biggest aha, my biggest ha-ha was definitely <laughs> when I was, trying to, I was teaching a, a workshop for a bunch of FDNY lieutenants. And I'm, I was talking about, you know, someone asked about mental toughness and, you know, I went on this huge like professorial, you know, lecture about, oh, mental toughness, talking about some of the nuances that Jason pointed out. But I was basically saying, look, mental toughness is the wrong idea. It's about mental strength, mental flexibility, right? It's about, it's about agility, as Jason pointed out. And I went on this whole lecture and, you know, I actually even got into it. One guy was sort of coming after me in the same way that Jason recounted. And I had to like dodge a few questions about, he was really asking me, well, where, well, why do people say mental toughness? And I was trying to make a point and there was a little bit of, you know, to and throw with that a little kind of judo. And then 
you know, this is the people, these are people I know, many of them pretty well. So it was all in fun. But then that night, there's this family called the Walenda family. Uh, they, they walk on uh, high wires above things. So they were, this family, Nick and, and Liana Walenda, were walking across Times Square. Um, as, on, as you do. As you do. As you know, we all on a, do. That. On a Tuesday evening. You know? Exactly. Just, you know, Wednesday in New York City. And so you decide to walk across the high wire. But, Patty, they were walking on a high wire and they were going to unclip from their harnesses and walk over each other. And so they, the team asked me to come and comment on this. So I'm on TV, like in Times Square. And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about in mental conditioning is this idea, as Jason's talking about, about finding a place of calm in the middle of chaos. And what are the techniques that you use or the way of being to find that calm in the middle of chaos? And how can you be your best self? In those situations. In other words, one, one idea I have about what we would call mental toughness, but I think about agility is being able to perform the same way that you perform without a stress when the stress is there, right? And so basically, you know, what happens is I actually fail at my own game in that moment. I, I get so freaking, you know, hyper aroused. I'm so, my arousal is ticked up. I'm so activated that when the guy, I'm Michael Strahan's interviewing me, I start getting amped and I'm like, you know what? It's just, it's just incredible, incredible mental toughness. <laughs> and my phone literally lights up after I walk off this, you know, interview and all these FDNY guys are just like razzing me about, Oh really? Mental toughness now, Fader. Like you didn't like that term. And now, so, I mean, I think, I think basically, you know, when I think about this, you know, one NFL running back once said to me, I do this exercise with teams where I'll say, okay, as you, you know, as you're talking about, what is mental toughness? And I'll have everybody fill out a little note card. Uh, you do get back some kind of very hilarious responses to that. I remember, you know, like someone said once, you know, mental toughness is not punching someone in the face when they irritate you. They're not entirely wrong. But really, one of the best definitions that I got about mental toughness is that it's having an excellent filter. And I think when you think about what that means, it's saying like, okay, when stress comes, I know ahead of time what my filter is going to be to be able to diminish the effect of that stress on my performance. And so I think what most people do is they don't develop that filter. They don't know. They don't know how they're going to react. They're just kind of freewheeling it. And it's, it's kind of, to me, to, to your point before, it's pretty crazy that that's the case, especially when you think about what kind of games are on the line or in an operator space, what's on the line right? We're kind of freewheeling a lot of time. We're saying, well, if I get, if it gets hairy or sideways, as they say, uh, sometimes in the fire department, I don't know how I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, I, when I ask major league baseball players that um, I, it really, it shows me who they are. Because if I ask someone, a player like, Hey, you know, what do you do if you give up a home run? And they'll say, well, you know, I just kind of shake it off. But then I say, well, okay, how do you do that? And if they can't tell me in very specific terms, I know that they're actually vulnerable out there. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. can't say, well, what I do is I take a deep breath or what I do, or even to me, like, I'm not sure what I do, but I have this kind of little place I go in my yeah. mind. That's fine. Right. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I use self-talk, like whatever, you know, but not having a way, yeah. a green way that I, this is the way that my mind goes to help me through it. And I know what that place is and I know how to navigate there. If you don't have that, you're, you're really in jeopardy. And in particular, it's a great, uh, I love that idea of the filter. In particular, I had a, a quarterback one time who would talk about going one for one. It wasn't necessarily like there might be a bad throw an interception, bad drive, whatever. 
but it was less about, it was partly about like, here's where I want to go. I'll, I'll step out. I'll disconnect, but it's, I'm disconnecting so I can redirect and I need to know what I'm redirecting to. So it's about him. I'm choosing what I pay attention to. And in the end, no matter what I do, whether I look in the crowd for a pretty girl or I pray to God or whatever it might be, after all that, I want to end up focusing on back on this. This is my non-negotiable priority thing. And that's, you know what? And you said another thing, Patty, that I think is super important, which is, you know, this idea of task relevant cues. Mm -hmm. Like when we don't have a great filter, we start paying attention to cues in our environment that are not relevant to the task. And so part of the goal of having a great filter is to be able to pay most of your attention to task relevant cues. And in an environment like you're dealing with, Jason, that's like even harder than, as we said before, than pro sports. There's things that can kill you. There's people that you care a lot for who could die. And so there's a lot of things that can take your attention that may not be what you need to focus on at that time. So I'm curious, as we start to draw the show to a close, You've mentioned a few times about training and here's the, you know, an exercise we might run. What's something for people who might be dealing with a level of pressure that's like over the top of what they're used to or it's chaotic or potentially lethal if you are in the military, that here's a little simple thing that, that I've found useful or that we teach that is pretty easy to put into place, but it does make an immediate difference in terms of both filter and clarifying what are the task relevant cues that I should be going to. Yeah, you both raised several great points. And one of the competitive disadvantages that we have that oftentimes it flies in emergencies is we don't have the luxury of being able to call a timeout, mm-hmm. right? The, the play clock doesn't stop, you know, similar to combat. So you basically have to create like micro timeouts, right? And one of the things that I, I think that we were able to borrow from, from sport and apply was it wasn't lost on any of us in the New York City Fire Department, then we went to flies and emergencies. We were tested physiologically, psychologically, cognitively, et cetera. I mean, I don't know of a single New York City firefighter that, that's experienced and been tested that looks at the science now that we're, we're introducing folks to earlier in their career and exposing them to and says, that's bullshit, right? Like it hasn't happened yet. Everyone says, actually, that's, I've experienced all of that, right? And maybe ways that I didn't even appreciate at the time. So historically, if you asked our folks, like, when is the ability to control your, your breath or arousal or your respiratory rate or, you know, these physiological functions or your mindset or inner monologue, when is it most important? Most of our folks had said, well, I'm at, I'm at a fire where a firefighter is trapped in distress, running out of air, lost, like where the consequences of failure are beyond lethal. That's when I use these skills, right? And we started to have a conversation, you know, kind of an open forum, like, all right, how many of those events do we go to? Well, they're very infrequent. Okay, so if a, you know, a relief pitcher, a closer doesn't tap into these, these skills, right, or these techniques until game seven of the World Series, what's the chance he's going to suddenly pull him out of his, his ass, right? Like, he's not. So every, every fire and emergency that we go to, right, or every training evolution that we perform is kind of an opportunity, provides an opportunity for us to kind of integrate these skills in. And the reality is, and this is something we've also borrowed from, from sports psychology, because, you know, occasionally somebody will resist it and says, like, look, I, I don't want to be thinking about anything more at fires and emergencies. I just want to be able to trust my instincts, my training, and I want to be, you know, present. Like, present. 
great, right? They're like, I don't want to add any more cognitive drag to, to what I already have in my plate. We're like, great. That's exactly what this program is advocating, right? We spend far more time thinking about this aspect of performance during the preparation phase. It's relatively light during the execution phase, right? The operational phase. And then as soon as the, the event is over, it's back to the drawing board. And during the reflection phase, it becomes very cognitive, very, very cognitive and, and, and somewhat burdensome, particularly if we're going to try to absorb our failure in a meaningful way and learn from it. And that thinking has been huge. I mean, I know personally, it's been super, super helpful for me knowing that these events we go to are sometimes few and far between. They're infrequent. They last only a matter of minutes. There's no timeouts. And you never walk away and say, that was the absolute best version of myself, right? If you're being honest with yourself or it's super rare and now you have days, weeks, and months to think about this before you see something like that again. Occasionally, you, you, it could be a novel event. You won't see another, you know, again, for another decade or two, if, if ever. So having that, that comprehensive approach broken down by phases and figuring out when the skills work best specific to each phase and each task has been super helpful and Fader has been instrumental in helping us to really maximize that effort. So what is it that to be so damn Excellent, bustle with the best in there. Simply impressive, no worry and stressing. I'm getting my right now. Put your shades on and let me show you how. Yeah, right. You ain't